It is hard for me to believe that I have a son who will graduate from university this year. When Alexander was a freshman four years ago, I delivered him to the University of Chicago, and there were about 60 entering freshmen in his dormitory. And I heard at least nine different first languages spoken, and I know this because I was shameless about saying, excuse me, what language are you speaking? So they were all the Asian languages, of course, but also Russian and French and Swahili, among others. This was, this was diversity on steroids, basically. We went to the opening convocation. We were crammed into that uh, Rockefeller chapel there to hear the president of the university speak. And he talked about that, how this entering class was intentionally the most diverse class they could imagine and assemble by any measure or matrix they could find. And he told us the reason for that diversity of point of view was that such diversity is essential for any genuine intellectual inquiry. But more than that, he told us that everybody has a particular point of view, but that point of view will be challenged and argued and challenged again. There were no victims, there were no protected groups, nobody got a pass, and everyone had to both state and defend her or his point of view while in the university community. The overriding story, the meta-narrative, if you like, of that community was that diversity served the purpose of intellectual inquiry. That's what they were about. And the norm, the way in which that was done, was challenge. And the practical effect of that were classes and community and commons and dormitories and what have you. It was really stimulating, interesting stuff. So think about St. Paul. He's writing to the Church of God in Corinth, and he's addressing one of the most polyglot, diverse communities in that world. All the people from Asia and Western Europe wound up in Corinthian uh, ports along the way. Diversity was a given on so many levels, including in the community of faith, apparently, as the gospel was enculturated, philosophical traditions, different imaginative worlds. Uh, but Paul's first purpose for writing, first purpose for writing, was to address the divisions and the conflicts that arose from this diversity as people jostled to see who would control the narrative, who would be governing the telling of the story. And Paul appealed for unity. He didn't say, let's just get along. He didn't do anything particularly useless. He appealed for unity based on his understanding of the, the big story. One baptism and the power of the cross. And he set that over against any eloquent wisdom. But what's the norm for this community? If it was challenge for that university, what's the norm for the Christian community addressing diversity and the conflict that flows from it. And the answer isn't immediately clear. We often associate Corinthians with the things that come later. Women be silent in church and stay, uh, treat your wife as you treat Christ. And all, that, all of those things that flow as practical consequences as Paul works out what, what to do. And ironically, it's those things that have become norms in so many churches and have caused the divisions which, in fact, Paul would be appalled, and appalled by. No, the norm comes earlier. He talks about the narrative being one baptism, the power of the cross, but the norm that echoes throughout all his letters is seek to be imitators of Christ. 
rather in the way that we've just sung in that hymn, The Summons. To the Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. To the Ephesians, he writes, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself for us. To the Philippians, he urges them to be of one mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And to the Galatians, he speaks of baptism again. says, for as many of you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ. The norm for Paul is this unity with Christ by which we imitate Christ. We imitate the Messiah or live into being like Christ. And then he practically works out what the rules look like in that time and that place, treating each other with respect and remembering the story of Jesus. So we live in a polyglot world that's much more diverse than we see here on Sunday mornings. You see it in work, you see it on the streets, you see it in the cinemas, you spend 20 minutes at the student center at Georgia Tech, that the world is just different, and there's difference all around us. And in the middle of our various conflicts, both within and without the church, we hear especially about our need for civil discourse. We could say that one of the most needed and Christ-like qualities of our time, the practical consequence of the norm, if you like, is growing in our capacity to tell the truth, to speak truth to one another in love. It's especially a gift that's needed in times of conflict and a world in which spin so often trumps truth as we jockey for power to define the narrative in the first place. I was reading a book, some of you may have come across or heard of Adam Bryant. He writes the corner office column in the New York Times, just a little thing where he talks to CEOs and corporate leaders. And he's collected just tons and tons of these interviews and put them together in a a business book called Quick and Nimble. And, And in the midst of these uh, interviews, he, 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 he talks about what businesses need to be, and he talks about how they need to respect the culture and how they need, to, um, uh, they need to have respect for one another. And he has a whole section on adult conversations and how important those are for businesses being quick and nimble in a changing environment. We could dive in just about anywhere, but here's what he says. It's, it's rather like talking the truth in love. He says, in many companies, managers are afraid to offer, afraid to offer, frank feedback. And as a result, problems are swept under the rug, tensions simmer, talks that should have happened in the moment are delayed for months until something like a performance review comes along. And then there's bad feelings, why didn't you tell me, and all of that sort of thing, the consequences of not telling the truth in the moment and the importance of developing that ability or practicing that skill in corporate life. But it's true for us too. Truth-telling is practical because we can make it a practice, a spiritual practice. And I'm not going to launch into a lesson on that here, but but truth-telling involves and includes learning to listen attentively. And it includes, like Jesus, those times when he wasn't available and he said no. And he drew limits. And those times when he said things that other people didn't want to hear, that's part of truth-telling too, doing in words the things that Jesus did. And even if we seek to, to imitate Jesus, we have to remember also that he was a man of his time 
And his time is not our time. He called out the scribes and Pharisees, you brood of vipers, in ways which were fairly common discourse in his time, but wouldn't work in our media-intensive world, uh, for sure. I remember having to teach my children that just because they said something dreadful and then said no offense, that it didn't mean no offense was taken. You know, we've got to learn, we've got to learn how to speak the truth and how to listen in such a way that our most formal hierarchical relationships and the most intimate and familiar ones are strengthened. The challenge, the real challenge of this practice is dealing and recognizing our own vulnerability. What, what, what the book called fear, those managers had fear. What if we are misinterpreted? What if the other gets angry and ends this relationship that, that I value? What if that person goes off and, and starts gossiping about what I said and misinterpreting it? It's these fears that keep us from such hard spiritual work. It's these very vulnerabilities, if you think about it, that are the power of the cross. In some ways, it is our willingness to be vulnerable that is the foundation of unity in a broken and divided and polyglot and diverse world. It's part and parcel of our hope in a world which every one of us experiences and addresses real difference just about every day of our lives. Truth-telling, including attentive listening, is the path to understanding. And it's a practice of faith that offers real hope to the world. Truth-telling is what is going on in Geneva at its best. Truth-telling is what goes on in our marriages and our partnerships at their best. Truth-telling is a practice of hope. In our customary time of silence for prayer, you might allow some difficult stuff to come to mind, that conversation you've been putting off, that thing that's been bothering you, that someone else is doing, any of the things that fall into the category of things you ought to have done but have left undone. As it comes to mind, remember, ask for the courage to be vulnerable, even as you remember that you are beloved and that in that love, nothing will separate you, even your own fear, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. In silence and in response to the gospel, let us pray.